I think we're going to uh, very quickly wake up to a world where our residents realize that education and then getting a job is not the linear relationship, but in fact, it'll be flipped. And I think instead of going to college to get a job, I think students will increasingly be going to a job in order to get a college degree. Welcome to The Talented Life. I'm your host, Ahmad Mansour. Today, we have someone here who really does know about what it means to develop your career. He's the vice president of Norco College. He's a national speaker. He's the CEO of Telos Educational Services, and he's a self-described academic, recovering academic elitist. He's the author of several books, including the best-selling Redefining the Goal, and he is known for producing these animation videos on careers that go viral, including the one that we're going to talk about today, Success in the New Economy. Welcome, Dr. Fleming, aka Kevin Fleming. <laughs> Kevin, please. It is an honor uh, to be with you today, and thanks for the invitation. So first of all, so it's okay for me to call you Kevin? Absolutely. Great, great. I, my, my mom taught me that uh, you define your degrees, the degrees should not define you. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was really taken back by this ideal of calling yourself a recovering academic elitist. So I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, that's, that's a good way by virtue of introduction. So um, a lot of folks that get into the career development, you know, uh, workforce development space, um, maybe have a different trajectory or pathway than I found. So I'm a first generation college student. My dad was in the army. My mom was a stay at home mom. I didn't have anybody to really guide me about life after 12th grade. It, they wanted what was best for me. And I feel blessed to have had two parents, you know, that, that loved me, but they didn't know really how to help me navigate college or student loans or anything. Um, I remember in high school one day I came home, I told my mom, I got the FAFSA. And she thought I needed to go to the school nurse. Like I contracted <laughs> something, right? But is it- What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. What'd you get to school? No, mom, it's a free application for federal student aid. Um, and so I, I ended up, I didn't have any, any real career direction or guidance. I, I just went to college. That's what I thought you're supposed to do. So I got two baccalaureate degrees in psychology and philosophy. I learned my senior year, I did not want to be a therapist and get my PsyD. So I graduated and tried to get a job at the philosophy company. That didn't work out. <laughs> too well, uh, doesn't exist. And so I did what any 21 year old would do with $100,000 in student loans and absolutely no employability skills. Um, I went back to school. So I did my, my first master's degree in educational policy and leadership. Then I started working in higher ed and I got interested I'm not in, the, in the, the business side of education because it is a business. Uh, here's a fun fact for, for you and your listeners today, inside Washington DC, inside the Beltway, there are more lobbyists for higher education than any other industry. You would think it might be insurance or financial services or biopharma. Nope, it's higher ed. So that's a different podcast. That's um, no, that, but that's pretty incredible. I mean, I, you know, the, the whole K Street lobbying uh, organizations have exploded over the past 20 years. Actually, uh, there's a reason why Washington DC is now one of the top economies um, in the United States and in the world because the lobbyists have, have landed there. But I did not know that, uh, that the educational lobbyists were leading the pack. Why is that? 
there, you know, I don't want to pretend to have the answer, but I will say sure. it's, um, it's big business. And you look at the amount, I think it was maybe six or seven years ago now in America, uh, it used to be uh, credit card debt was the number one burden. And then student loan debt surpassed that. And it's been eclipsing it ever since. Um, it's big money. And the interest from student loan debt is it's big money. So there's, there's a lot of folks that have an interest um, in, in where people enroll and, and how much they might get into debt and how those loans are, are not forgivable. Um, so there's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole other financial dimension to that. I found myself one day sitting in my apartment paying my bills. And I looked up on the wall and I had my two bachelor's degrees and my two master's degrees after completing my MBA. And, and they were in those really nice, like mahogany frames you get at the bookstore with the gold seal, right? Remember those? And, and then I looked down at my pile of bills that I could not pay. And, and I experienced, um, it, I guess the literature might call it cognitive dissonance. Uh, the kids call it WTF. Like, you know, I'm supposed to be uh, gainfully employed and all that. And I wasn't. And, and I realized the hard way that our educational systems and structures really have one goal, and that's to get you to commencement and get you to, to cross the stage and turn your tassel and graduate. It is not necessarily an explicit or an inherent goal to prepare you for life after commencement. And so I found myself overeducated, underemployed, and it was actually then a friend that advised me and I got an industry credential in geographical information science and GIS. And it was that one week, 40 hour credential that lifted me out of working poverty. Now, I would argue it's, it's combined with my formal education. One without the other is insufficient and, and, and you know, wouldn't be enough. But it was that technical skill that then got me into uh, the California Community College system. And I was doing geospatial analysis of, of demography and demographic changes along with industry compositions. And I started to advise the, um, now the 116 colleges in the state about where, what programs they should have and where to meet the future supply and demand of, of workforce needs. And that opened up my eyes to this whole world I had no idea existed. And, and so then of course I went back and got the, that PhD, that the final degree to, to really you know, fine tune the, the student loan debt, wanna make sure I was at least a quarter million dollars in debt. Um, and that's why I call myself a recovering academic elitist because there was a point in my career when I believed that you had to get that four year or, or master's degree to be, uh, you know, to, to contribute to society and to be economically viable and prosperous. And I learned the hard way that that's not necessarily everybody's path or truth. And that in today's world, especially post pandemic world, skills trump degrees. So it's finding that marriage between the paper and, and the ability to perform. Sure. Well, that's interesting because I think that's when I met you. I met you when um, we were both youngins working in uh, workforce and economic development, and you were one of the leaders. And so it, it now makes sense. And it's so interesting how that particular certificate um, lit you up. It lit you up for the community colleges. And currently you're with Narco College where you're the vice president, but you're a former dean of career education, just like myself, That's what right. I used to be. Um, tell us a little bit about uh community colleges and the offerings that they provide students when it comes to career education? The, the community colleges are really the, the gem of the American higher education structure. To be able to have in almost every community um, a, a class classroom and, and hands-on instruction skills they can take advantage of at the most affordable price points across America. Um, it's, it's a gift and, and it's, it's, it's been a long time coming and a lot of investments, both at the federal level and the state level for every community to have this. 
Um, whether it's your local community college or the one you know adjacent, um, you can get prepared. Whether it's for um, vo vocational learning, hands-on skills, industry credentials, a two-year degree, transfer preparation, um, it really is the best investment of our dollars that goes oftentimes under uh, underutilized or unappreciated in terms of real the value they can have. Community colleges are laser beam focused on offering career and technical education programs that really provide those credentials or certifications that are needed for the local economy. And not every college offers everything. Um, if you're really interested in a specific um, you know, trajectory or industry, you might have to go one or two colleges over, um, but it is the best return on investment for time and money to really get the hands-on skills that, that you need sure. or to show up and, and basically just ask the question, hey, I'm here, you know, I need some help to figure out you know, what impact I wanna make in the world there's the heart of the folks that work at community colleges. They will take the time to sit down with you one-on-one. -on -one. They will work with you. They'll introduce you to the faculty and they'll make sure you get plugged in correctly far more than I've seen at other, um, other institutions of higher learning. Sure. So it's interesting because so often um, with community colleges, you know, what we, what is often spoken about is how they're undervalued and in an economy that gives uh, an education that provides so many choices out there. And here in California, where you have, I believe we're up to 119 uh, community colleges, why is these institutions considered undervalued? What's stopping students from marching in there and seeing where the opportunities are? Well, I think educational elitism is alive and well in America. And so we have this, this love affair with the baccalaureate you know, the diploma and with a liberal arts university and, and there's a role for them. There's a place for them. Absolutely. Um, but a majority of Americans will not go to a four university. A majority of Americans don't need to. When you look at just the labor market demand of, of what is needed, um, Georgetown University, you know, says only 36 percent of Americans that need a four year degree or more, you know, to satisfy the labor market needs of America. But you've got, you know, two thirds of our citizenry needs hands-on skills and, and still needs a, a post high school education or certification. And that's where the community colleges really come in. So it, it, it has been, uh, I think the wisest investment we've made, but, but there's still something about, you know, when I was going, when I graduated from high school, Maude was like, oh, I don't wanna go to 13th grade, right? There's kind of like this cultural, like, um, like a negative, you know, if you go to local college and what a lot of families don't know, and I know you know this, a lot of our faculty, they're moonlighting. They're, they're at UCLA or Stanford or they're moonlighting teaching with us. The education is superb. Um, it just doesn't often have the swagger uh, that, that some are seeking. So it's really just a, it's a symbol and it's a cachet, but the, the actual meat, the product um, is as good as anything else out there. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I think I'm, I'm kind of on the fence when it comes to where community colleges are. On one hand, it is an incredible a resource you know, I often talk about how, you know, here in California, you know, where else can you go where you can just, you know, literally wake up out of your bed and say, you know, I want to enter college and I want to enter the middle class, essentially. Yeah, it's open access. Skill. That's right. Um, so, you know, that that's an incredible resource uh, for different people in different communities. However, it just seems to be a gap in terms of how we come to market uh, community colleges, how um, the, just the lack of stickiness that we often see uh, between the, the things that if you go into a community colleges, the faculty and leaders there, they're so excited about 
um, what they can offer. But in many ways, uh, the students sometimes are not coming in the vast numbers that they could. Yeah, that's right. I think most, most community colleges have empty seats. You know, I mean, they're not often, um, now there's, there was a time a few years ago when you and I were both working side by side and, and there was, when the economy, you know, gets really bad, then enrollments, you know, skyrocket. And there was a time when we were turning people away just out of sheer capacity volume. Um, but right now, I mean, there's, every community college has a co couple open seats uh, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. Um, but you're right, it's often not laser beam focused or targeted in the way to capitalize on that investment and capitalize on the talent and the expertise of some of the folks in the room. Part of that's a system issue, part of that system and alignment issue. It's, a, it's an issue of what we measure. Uh, and so our system is often uh, you know, measuring some of the wrong things. Now it's, it's been getting better and it's changing. I, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but we used to have two-year terminal degrees in this state, and then we added the associate degree for transfer, this new type of two-year degree. And then for the first time, in, at least in California, um, you would be, we solved the problem of students wasting their time and energy getting units they don't need to transfer. We at least finally solved the problem that my brother faced you know, two decades ago, where he transferred and, and the university wouldn't take half the units he got, and he was told from a college counselor that they would all count. We solved that, you know, that problem, at least that nut's been cracked. Um, so now if a student comes to community college, they know they want to transfer to Cal State or UC or whatnot. Now we have a guarantee that's legislatively driven that all those units will count and that student won't you know, have to retake classes or miss something. What we need is a similar legislation for occupational preparation and for career trajectory alignment, because we still have some of those issues where the local curriculum or certificate may or may not be exactly aligned with what the local employer needs. And so that's still an opportunity for growth. But I would say a, 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 a gross preponderance of our programs, over 70% are, are laser beam, you know, teaching the right things. And there's always refinement that's needed for the balance. So is there any type of change or transformation uh, that you think need to occur in the community colleges? Because so often, because community colleges are doing so much, you know, they're doing transfers, they are doing career education, and, you know, they're working with students that are not necessarily prepared, you know, uh, giving them second chances. And, um, you know, that, that's a lot, but I think because community colleges do a lot, um, we kind of hold back our critique or criticism of them as institutions. There's a change in economy out there. Are there anything that community colleges do that should be under the lens of change and transformation? This is why I love you. That's a great question. So I think for me, it's, it's looking at life after commencement. So only recently did the state start to provide the data of the earnings of a graduate after they left our, our walls, right? And so if, you know, I believe, and I know, I think you believe this too, is that graduation is an important milestone, but it's not the goal. The ultimate goal is for them to be in a, in a thriving career where they can provide for their family, get back to their community, feel a sense of self-identity and self-worth and, and, and get jazzed and excited when they wake up in the morning and not just punch the clock and, and wait, you know, praying for retirement, right? So, so if that's really the goal is for them to be engaged in a, in, a, in a sector and in the community with a living wage, only a couple of years ago did we start to get that data to look at, well, how do our students actually perform? Historically, and even today, the primary metric is, well, how many students graduated and got the piece of paper? But, but we got to look further than that and look at, well, how many of them are actually employed in the field of study that they, you know, that they took courses in and how many of them are, had a, a wage increase or at least above the, the living wage for that region? That, I think, is the more important variable. 
And so as a vice president at Norco College, you know, three years ago, we were redoing our educational master plan. And so for the first time, I was able to work with our team and we added that as, as one of our key performance indicators for the college of what is the wage of all of our students, not just the students in this program or that program, every single human being that comes through our walls that, that gets a certificate or a degree, we're now measuring ourselves on what is their earning potential? What are they getting, you know, a year out, two years out, five years out? And that I think could be and should be one of the primary metrics for the community college system. Because if, if you know, using my own experience, Ahmad, if every student that comes to us gets a two-year degree in philosophy, I will argue that there, there, we may not see the earning uh, premium or the employability rates that we would love to see in our community. Well, I love some philosophy, but I totally agree with you. I, I couldn't imagine being a dean uh, in the humanities uh, at the community colleges. I probably would have been bored out of my head there. But um, yes, I, I think the community colleges just have a tremendous um, vast resource for career education. My take is this, that community colleges do not market themselves um, in a way in which they can become sticky. You know, for example, um, I think so often, you know, when you look at career education, a lot of the marketing with career education is around uh, wages, you know, right. you can earn this, you know, but in many ways, um, you know, if you look at it through the lens of a behavioral uh, economist, you know, they'll tell you that it's not always about advertising wages, uh, perhaps for the last generation, because wages and making a living was huge, but purpose, and I know you and I are going to get into this, but purpose wasn't as important to uh, earlier generations. It was about the wage and making a living. In today's world, behavioral, behavioral economists would say that um, instead of looking at things rationally, you may wanna look at things irrationally and, and really advertise based on what, does, what experiences does this job give you? Uh, not only at work, but also outside of work. Now that, that sounds counterproductive, but in many ways, that's how our brains work these days. What do you say to that? I absolutely agree. I, I have a, a colleague um, that does CT marketing out in Ohio and he recommends every culinary arts program should advertise as such. They should say, hey, do you like to play with knives and fire? Exactly. You know, then, then come to our culinary arts program, right? And, and, and there's, a, there's, there's a lot of hooks of what we do. I, I agree with you. I think leading with wages is not, um, and the data is, is bearing this out. Most students are looking at higher education as a commodity and they'll go, there's not a lot of institutional affinity to their local community college, but there is about what's the lifestyle that I'm going to get if I go through this program and I get this job, exactly. what is my life going to look like? Can I afford the truck and the weekend concerts? Am I going to get, what, what is, what's my home going to be like? Can I get out of my parents' basement? Like, what is this going to be? So for, I agree with you. I think the lifestyle that, that we are preparing a student for is how we should start that, that marketing campaign, not on here's our convenient locations or the quality of our faculty or the, the caliber of our instructional equipment or the way median wage that you could expect to get all, all of those in terms of the, the, the what and the how and the where is not as important as the why. 
And I absolutely agree. We need to be, um, you know, community colleges don't get a lot of marketing dollars. It's, it's one of the few areas, there's just not a budget for that. So we can never compete with some of the private sector, you know, uh, pathways and, and, and educational institutions to do commercials and the like. We just don't have the bandwidth or the dollars, but we can start with the why and help our residents understand the value proposition of getting that industry credential, of getting that career education pathway. Simon Sinek even talks about that, about starting with why. And that's what builds the intrinsic motivation within uh, the students to, to then want to persevere and say, okay, well, then I'm going to get up early and come to this training program because I understand the lifestyle and the why of how I can change my, my situation or provide more for my family or be a good role model for my child or whatever, whatever the, the intrinsic motivation triggers might be, but they have to see the payoff. And they have to know what it's going to look like when they're done. And it's not just about the wages. And 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 you're you're kind of poking one of my one of my uh, my hot button issues about. I see. I, hate- I, I can't I can't believe how much on 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 point you and I are on this. Wow. <laughs> we're 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 like minded, man. I mean, this is. Yeah. I get frustrated when our colleagues advertise their program and they show the median wage or the average wage someone can get when they go out into the career. And that's, that's a hot button issue for me because you don't get to go out and just get a minimum wage to be an accountant or an average wage to be a construction worker. There's a range. There's a huge wage range, you know, regardless of what career you're going to go into. And so I love to market. Here's the, the complete wage ranges you can get if you go into game development or computer science or electrical engineering. Because I want residents to know if you're really, really good at this, and if this occupation and this skill set is in line with who you are and your natural abilities and how you think and what gets you excited, you're going to earn at the top of the wage range. But if you're doing it just to do it, but you suck at it, if you're not very good at marketing, but you're getting a marketing major, if you're not good with numbers, but you're getting an accounting degree because you think it's going to pay well, I like to market. No, you're not. You're going to be at the bottom of the, of the range. And here's where that range is. So let's find the alignment between who you are, what you can do, and what someone will pay you to do, and that'll guarantee you a position at the top quartile of every wage range, regardless of, of your educational attainment at the moment. And so I love to lead with that with that range because it's about it's about the fit with the person, not necessarily the transcript uh, you know, that, that re- that's required for the job. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, the private sector, um, how the private sector gets more funding. Um, I guess a, I guess about two three years ago, um, prior to then Lieutenant Governor Newsom uh, becoming the governor, I actually sat on a panel with him, and one of the things it was on the future of work, and one of the things that we we discussed was this ideal around how much is the business sector truly connected to the community colleges now. My premise is this, and and you know this is this is going to be a critique, so I'm just letting you know. Bring it that the that community colleges, the 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 leadership and professionals, overstate their stickiness and connection to the business sector. Now you know we develop all of these uh, industry driven initiatives, but at the end of the day, the person who's showing up there is you know, the, you know, director of, you know, community relations and public affairs, or, you know, someone who is not a decision maker. And the governor agreed with me. And I, and as I said, in that conversation, and you may know some, but I know I don't, that I've, I have not seen 
a major company, you know, give a million, two million dollars in cash, not from their foundation, but from their operational budget to a community college, just like they would do if it was an R and D uh, lab at a at a uh, at a university, uh, to set up some type of center for that connects a pipeline of uh, of workers. I haven't seen that. Now you may know about that, but I, I don't. So my question to you is, how can we create more of a bilateral relationship with business that is not superficial? It, it's a great point, a good question. I don't think that was really too much of a critique uh, at all. Um, I mean, you, you're right on. I think um, having been a CTE dean you know, for eight years, I, we're required to have the annual industry advisory board meetings. And so you and I, we would do that and bring the faculty together. And, and some of those relationships become pure and true and, and have longevity. Others are just, you know, a one day a year, you know, review of the curriculum and a touch point. And that's insufficient to really have a, you know, strong connections. There are others on the other end of the spectrum where we have uh, employers that are teaching part-time in the program. And we have other, other models like Calbright, where it's actually employers financially investing in the tuition of, of their entry-level employees. We have apprenticeship programs where the student is already employed. And this is actually, I think, a direction that, that I think would be wise for our, our system to invest in is not looking at the linear relationship of a student becomes an employee, but rather the employee becomes a student. And if we can get the entry-level employee to be in a, an apprenticeship program with the college, part-time you know, classes over four or five years to get their two-year degree while they're employed, they're learning in school that, that, that relates to what they're doing on the job that same week and having that relationship, those are the places that you're going to see in all those apprenticeship pockets. That's where the employers and the colleges are going to be more tightly you know, joined at the hip. But I foreshadow an environment and look what's happening outside. You've got Google and Kaiser and these other groups that are coming out with their own certifications, kind of bypassing, you know, higher education almost completely. I think we're going to uh, very quickly wake up to a world where our residents realize that education and then getting a job is not the linear relationship, but in fact, it'll be flipped. And I think instead of going to college to get a job, I think students will increasingly be going to a job in order to get a college degree. Sure. I think but we're going to start. No, go ahead. You're beginning to see that because you're, you're beginning to see um, these intermediary uh, companies emerge that are uh, connecting uh, colleges and their extended ed programs with companies as a way of doing upscaling uh, towards not only a certificate, but a degree. I mean, obviously we know about Starbucks and ASU and there are a couple of others. And so I, I think that's one that's emerging. But I've always said, I've never known why community colleges do not use their contract education to create uh, a, a real company, like a real enterprise uh, that can compete with being a boot camp, with, can compete with some of those uh, adaptive organizations that are connected to, uh, to industry in a way that doesn't look like your traditional community colleges and, and, and is totally marketed uh, differently there. So but, I, it, I really think there's gonna be some huge changes uh, with the marketplace changing. I agree with you. And I think, you know, you asked that somewhat rhetorically, I think, you know, the answer it's, you know, what matters is what you measure and what you measure is what matters. And I remember when I first came into this field, I was shocked that the economic development mission 
was completely irrelevant to the accreditation process. And it wasn't any of the key performance indicators of the college. And it wasn't measured at a local or statewide level at all. It was the, the entire group that you're talking about, that is an ancillary, not required. It's not even officially part of the core mission of the California Community College System. It's an allowable activity. When, when we don't have workforce development as a primary part of the mission, and if it's not part of accreditation, and if it's not part of any metric, of course, it's not going to be adequately funded or prioritized. Yeah. And, and you know, I want to switch here, but I want to make this comment that, you know, the, the challenge is that community colleges and, you know, several leaders in the community colleges have always mentioned, you know, being adaptive, you know, to the market. Um, and that's, that's really a concern. I think the community colleges have to really take a deep dive in because in many ways, the way they're funded really inoculates them from really true market conditions, you know, that, that, that asks for them to uh, respond in a way that doesn't get curriculum held up, you know, in a arduous uh, process um, through, you know, through some of the systems that are set up. You don't have to answer that. That was just like- No, I agree. You're right on. I agree. Preach, (laughs) preach. So so I want to switch over to uh, your fabulous book that I had a chance to read. And Earlier, we were talking about, you know, how many things we have in common in terms of how we're thinking about this. Well, um, you know, reading, redefining the goal um, pretty much cements that. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about what brought you to write this book and what are the pressing issues around redefining the goal, where we are now and how and why we need to redefine it? When... You know, I, I didn't wake up years ago and start a, start writing a business plan to start a consulting side hustle and produce animated videos and write a book and become a national speaker like that. It, it was very organic. It didn't, I, you know, it just happened. I started just talking to folks and explaining what I was seeing about the misalignment about our educational systems and the actual world of work. And my own story being, you know, where that started. And I saw that it, it, it repeated hundreds, if not thousands of times. So I'd go around, I'd do my presentations, I'd be at conferences, then a group would ask me to come out and speak. And, and that started to evolve. And finally, honestly, someone just, just pulled me aside and said, hey, do you have this written down in a book? That was a great like four hour professional development really? workshop wow. we just did. Yeah. Do you have it written down? I, and I looked at him, I said, no, but that's a good idea. <laughs> like I never really thought of it. And I'll, I'll share with you what I don't share with a lot of folks, but how I got started is I did a four hour professional development pre-conference session and I recorded myself. And then I paid someone to transcribe the, the training. And that was about 50% of the book. That was the Smart. core structure. Smart. <laughs> I, I started with that. And then, and then I had 50 pages, you know, already written from that, from that training. And then, you know, then I just added an example here and some citations there. And, and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't my own opinion. So what's a little different about, about that book I wrote is that every chapter is, is laden with a lot of resources and, and links to the primary research and to, to every claim I make in there where it comes from, because it's, it's not my opinion, it's a culmination of the realities of the world that are often unspoken. So I wrote the book primarily for educators. The it, parents have read it and enjoyed it, students have read it and enjoyed it, but it's primarily for educators and administrators to read through that helps them to, it's, it's been described as an accurate gut punch um, about, hey, here's all the things that are wrong with our system that can be changed. And so I give over a dozen very specific recommendations about here's the things we can do to make incremental shifts 
to, to help that alignment between what's happening K through 16 and what's actually happening out in the real world. So it's not as jarring of a disconnect. So the book oh, goes can, through, can, of course, my story and others that kind of outlines those. That's great. So can, can we talk a little bit about um, how you see purpose? Because I, I think I mentioned earlier how previous generations, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't really think about purpose a lot. They, it was, you know, whether you're talking about the greatest generation um, or the generation after that, the boomers a little bit, but for the most part, it was get a job in the factory, um, you know, become part of the middle class, uh, a dream and live your life out. Yeah. But now, you know, students are, you know, you were talking about motivation earlier, some of the work that Daniel Pink did. Um, there's a different type of motivation for how students see their lives unfolding. And I think you really opened up a can of worms when you talked about purpose. Can you just mention a little bit about how you see purpose playing a role? Yeah, I think, I think everyone needs a reason for being. Everyone needs that, that trigger that gets them out of the bed in the morning and they get excited to go out and contribute to the world. And shortly ago, I did some research on the Japanese philosophy of Ikigai. And so for everyone listening, if you're not familiar with this, open up your web, web browser. Uh, well, not if you're driving or on the elliptical, but if you're in front of your computer, you know, go ahead and open up your web browser and do a search for Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And if you do a, like a Google image search, for Ikigai, you're going to see this Venn diagram of overlapping colors. Yep, you got it. It's a, the four circles. And, and here's, here's what it asks. It says, hey, identify these four things. What do you love? You know, what do you love to do? You know, what, what drives you? What are you good at doing? And that's a very different question, right? You, there might be some things you love to do that you're, you're just mediocre at. And, and so there, there's kind of a self-reflective point about understanding, you know, what you could do a, a profession versus what, is, what you're passionate about, right? So the first question, what do you love? The second of four questions is what are you good at? The third is what can you get paid for, right? What's a labor market reality of what someone will pay you to do? And the fourth question is what does the world need? You know, what are the problems out there the world needs you to solve? And when you can find something that's the intersection of all four of those things, and that's when your, your personal mission, your vocation, your profession, and your passion, and all those things meld, that's your ikigai. That's your reason for being. That's your reason for getting up in the morning. And that's your purpose, regardless of your job title, regardless of your, your current educational attainment or trajectory, if you can find that sweet spot. And, and what I've found is in my journey and in others, when people are in a, in a job or in between jobs, and if they feel that they're either undervalued or underemployed, or if they feel some uncertainty, or if they feel emptiness or uselessness, it's often because they're hitting three of those four marks, but they're missing one. It's not the whole package. They might have a job and it pays well, but they're not good at it. You know, or they might be good at something and they love it, but they're not solving any problem the world needs. And they feel absolutely useless moving paper from the inbox to the outbox. And so I think helping a student find their purpose, finding their why, finding their ikigai, that is actually the solution for decreasing the high school dropout rate, increasing the college going rate, in increasing the amount of, of students that then get a job in, in, their, in their field of choice. And it'll slow the amount of churn that we have in the private sector and in industry in their 20s and 30s. I read recently, Ma, there are more professionals in their 30s that are changing their career, moving back in with mom and dad than ever before, because they did what society told them to do. They did what their high school counselor told them to do. They did what their parents 
told them to do. And they graduated from high school, got a four-year degree and got a job. And they wake up a decade later and realize this is not anything in line with who I am or what I want to do. And they hit the reset button. And that is disastrous, not only for themselves, maybe financially, but also then for, for the company and for the well-being of our economy. So I think the earlier we can have really honest conversations about one's purpose and their ikigai, I think the more successful not only in educational institutions will be, but individual humans will be in really finding contentment and satisfaction in the world of work. I absolutely agree with you. And actually, I am seeking, I'm trying to write a book right now, and it's, it's tough. Um, I, I sh- I may use your approach there. I think that would be very helpful. Um, one of the things I talk about uh, in the book is this whole ideal around how we have to get students at some point to challenge some of those common assumptions that are um, embedded into them early on, you know, from their family systems, from their um, uh, religious institutions from the educational institutions. I'm, and, I, and I'm not saying to, you know, throw cast those to the side, but there are just a lot of things that influence how one chooses a career uh, and opportunity for themselves. And even today, I mean, I still run into students who are really following their, their parents, their grandfather's uh, dreams. And yeah. I'm very surprised by it. And so this Love whole that. idea of, you know, how can we liberate students to understand that how you've been uh, bought up is legit, is great, but the world is waiting for your own unique thumbprint uh, to give to the world. And I, and I think that's when it comes to this purpose uh, part that you're referring to. And interestingly, so I want to I, I follow up on that because, you know, just looking at your book, you spent some time with uh, uh, looking at high school students and how they move through that world into the college system. Um, being in high school is tough. And there's an assumption that you're going to embrace a career early on, which I think is just a disaster. It's, it's, uh, it's, un, it's, 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 it's not a great thing to do to a kid that is trying to understand the world. How would you say we address working with students to, you know, find their path? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. Um, and we know, we know you're right because how many 40 year olds are doing now what they said they were going to do when they were 16, <laughs> right? Very, very few. So, so what I, I've, I have a video out on that topic. All your listeners can go to, it's called the four skills and four steps. And I talk about it in my book and I did a lot of research kind of boiling this down. And it's a video for high school students and regardless of who they are, where they're from, what their socioeconomic status is, what their educational trajectory is, or their occupational trajectory might be. There's four skills and four steps all students need. So the four skills are all students need academic knowledge. They need to be able to read and, and write and, and, and perform. They need life skills. They need the second skills. They need to know financial management, a little bit of understanding, uh, you know, legal bases, understanding um, how to set goals, time management, personal management, uh, computer literacy, et cetera. The third skill all students need is employability skills. It's not just how to get the job and how to keep the job and how to pivot when industries change. And the fourth skill is the only one that's industry specific and that's technical skills. So all students need those four, but there's four steps 
we know from the research that all students should go through um, to successfully identify and maximize their, their likelihood to have, to have an advantage when they graduate. And those four steps is first, self-exploration and self-awareness. Really understanding who you are, your strengths, your personality, your deficiencies, your gifts. Secondly, then, it's career awareness, understanding what are the jobs out there, right? The Department of Labor says there's over 950 jobs. Most high school students can't name 30. You know, they only know what they know from their parents or what they see on TV. So part of it is just understanding what's all out there. Then, then the third step is really then, and this is the piece of that most students miss, it's that intersection of the two. It's then finding, okay, then given what's out there and given who I am, then what are the occupations that's going to be a good fit for me? I actually have a children's book coming out this summer called There's a Hat for That, inspired by my four-year-old uh, daughter right now. You know, there's a lot of occupations out there and you can put the hat on but some hats are gonna fit you a little bit better than others. So it's that process of aligning who you are with the opportunities out there. And then the fourth and final step is then that, that educational and vocational plan to then learn what are all the skills, knowledge and certifications and work experiences you need to actually then enter into that field and be competitive, not just to be mediocre, not just to get into the interview, but to excel and to be world-class in that. And so that's the last step that unfortunately, as you know, that's where a lot of our conversations start. You know, when, when, when a student comes into the counseling office, high school or college, it's normally, what's your name? What's your major? Okay, let's look at your courses. You need to graduate. And they miss these other steps. So the, the last step is that educational plan. If students followed that sequence, they are, are I can't use the word guaranteed because as you and I know, there's no guarantee, but they are setting themselves up for a higher likelihood, a higher probability that they're going to enter into a college, a training program, a military branch, you know, or a work experience program that's going to be just the right fit for them. Yeah, you know, this whole idea, I love it. And this whole idea around, you know, exploration, which is a term we often use. I say, I say we, really, you are the represent, you're the representative now, since I'm out of the, <laughs> out of the, uh, the, the systems here. But, you know, we use the term uh, exploration, which is right on point. It's a great term to use. But what we don't account for in terms of what exploration means is this whole ideal around failing forward, meaning that, you know, you know, for the through K-12, for the first 12 years of a, of a kid's uh, academic life, educational life, um, you know, they go through these letter grades where F means that you're not going past go. And so often now, um, you know, we know that we learn through our experiences and we run into ourselves through this exploration of our experiences. How can we bring, truly bring exploration into a college system where, you know, you're told that, you know, we have a guided pathway or you, once you jump in here, you have to know what you want to do. Otherwise, you're wasting everyone's time. I think some states have this figured out better than others. There are some regional training centers like in Ohio that have this nailed down where they have required classes where students explore and they get a hands-on experience in every one of the 16 industry clusters over the course of a year, ninth grade or 10th grade. So they're exposed, not just in concept, not by watching a video, not by just hearing about it or seeing a, a professional talk about on career day. 
but they spend two weeks, you know, in, in culinary arts and then two weeks in business administration, two weeks in agri-science, two weeks in high finance. And they're, they're learning about manufacturing for two weeks, construction for two weeks, supply chain automation for two weeks. We need, we need more programs that are intentionally hands-on and integrating those experiences early so students can make informed decisions. And if I were king of the world, and my wife likes to remind me often that I am not, but if I were king of the world, that'd be a high school graduation requirement, would be to go through a class like that or to have at least 100 hours of work experience documented. Because it baffles me sometimes that, that sometimes we prepare students for a career by giving them a test. Yeah, and there, there are some companies out there and they do workforce readiness assessments and it's a curriculum and a test. And they say, well, now you're work ready and never having been on the job site, never having done anything, never actually performing for an employer, never giving feedback on a project, but we, we declare them with a certificate as being career ready, never having worked. And for me, that's just lunacy. I think if you really want someone to be prepared for the workplace, they need to actually have some exposure and experience in the workplace. So I would love to see high schools requiring 50 to 100 hours you know, of work experience as part of the graduation requirements in that work experience class. That's the employer and the teacher in harmony, You know, making sure the students are safe and getting actual instruction, not just sweeping the floor, doing filing. And others, some states are doing it, and some countries are doing it far better than us too. That's how we start to, to evolve our system and in making it a little bit more relevant, a little bit more real, a little bit more practical, and introducing students to and exposing them with, with, with actual experiences. And I've seen, you know, one other example, I've seen some schools that say, hey, Ahmad, you're, you're a junior or, or a sophomore and you want to go into engineering, then you need to go this weekend to Habitat for Humanity and frame a house. So you can actually see geometry in action and the Pythagorean theorem being used. And, and after you go frame the house, you might have a better idea if you want to be that structural engineer or not, right? And, and, and you know what? And that may get them really hyped because they get to see what it looks like, you know, just not the, the theorem itself, but actually get to see what the theorem does. Um, Absolutely. I normally, I, I normally have you for a couple more minutes here. So I just want to um, ask you this. So, you know, in our four-year degree programs, you know, we have, you know, the Carnegie unit, which so often breaks up the experience of students, to, you know, to have a, uh, a, a full um, academic experience in which there are many different learning modalities that are introduced. Um, you know, how can we design learning experiences for students where they get to have a much broader uh, range of learning experiences. I mean, we, you know, we just kind of witnessed the, the hybrid model, you know, with the pandemic, but, you know, that was just really a response uh, that was triage in many ways. So, you know, how do we begin to, to look at reinvention of the uh, higher ed in the way in which students feel like they're having an experience where they can fail forward. I love that you mentioned the Carnegie unit. Few people ask a question about that. So a few years ago, I was curious about where it came from because as, as a community college dean, uh, you know, I, I would schedule and you would schedule these courses. And in our state, you know, 54 hours of lecture or 72 hours of lab, that's a three-unit class. And you need 60 units to get a two-year degree and 120 units to get a four-year degree. And I asked a dangerous question one day, Ahmad. I asked why. I asked, why does welding, biology, Shakespeare, and accounting 
all require 54 hours to master at an entry level, right? It didn't make any sense to me. Well, I, I did. It took me a while to find out. I wrote a small little uh, paragraph in my book about this, but I learned that the Carnegie unit was created in Chicago in the early 20th century, and it had one purpose. The one purpose of the Carnegie unit was to calculate teacher pensions. It had nothing really? to do with learning. Because think about it, it made sense in the, in the early 1900s that you know a teacher that was retiring you should get more pension if you spend more time in the classroom. Well, how do you calculate that? Well, here's, here's this formula, this Carnegie unit for calculating then how much pension a teacher should get by years of experience and hours in the classroom. We have bastardized the equation to then be the hallmark of our scheduling that then translate in the amount of time for student learning outcomes and to master a, a degree program. It's absolute, it's crazy. It, 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 we're, so what, we're so what, would be your, what would be your suggestion for change in that area? actual assessments, whether it's credit for prior learning or competency-based education, CBE. You, you know what, if, if I have a course and there's some institutions out there like Western Governors University and others that are doing this, where they say, hey, here's the 11 things you need to master. And once you master these 11 things, you can come in and test. And whether that takes you four weeks or 20 weeks, we're gonna support you at your pace. And once you can document either informational knowledge or hands-on mastery of these things, you pass the class, you move on to the next one because it might be sequential in order. Why do we pretend that everyone learns at the same speed, at the same rate, at the same day, at the same time? Why, why, we, there's no logic behind that or no research behind it, but we have a whole structure organized by the bell schedule. We need to completely get away from the Carnegie unit in my humble, it's not just my humble opinion, it's, it's actually, it's rooted in all the research, but we have to get to a competency-based education model where we validate and honor someone's experience and knowledge they might get outside of the classroom, still validate it and proctor it and ensure that we're, we're giving that seal of approval that they've earned it or mastered this particular knowledge or competency, but it doesn't have to be done on our schedule. It doesn't, it, we, we should provide the opportunity to learn, but if it takes one, if it takes you five weeks and it takes me 10, that should be okay. I agree. Um, well, actually, it's interesting because when I was dean, um, being dean actually informed me around another way. And that is, um, when I was dean, I actually had, um, was working on with the fire service and also with our, um, uh, with starting a police academy, which we never got around to. But in working with the fire service, what I found was is that um, there were three courses. You can have like a nine unit course. And I don't want to get too technical here for our audience here, but uh, because, you know, you can't break everything up when you're going through a fire academy. Um, there were moments or times when a particular course and all the things you did, you know, took up nine units and that was part of the experience. And that nine units was spread over many different ways um, in which students were engaged in learning activities, whether that was, you know, hosing down, you know, ho hosing down the, the burning building or, you know, being in the classroom or being observed, you know, by their instructors. And so th that created a much fuller experience. And I, I have some other examples um, in my own work with, with four-year universities around entrepreneurship. So, you know, I, I hope that's something that, that also um, can be looked at as, a, as an option 
uh, for students? I think we're going to be forced to, I say we, but I think the higher education sector is going to be forced to look at this in the years to come, and it's already starting. There are a lot of institutions, and, and we mentioned earlier some private sector companies that are coming up with their own certifications and training programs. I think if, if the higher education sector is not more in tune and aware of that shift, it might find itself... Um, in certain sectors, you know, kind of just behind the eight ball a little bit and, and people have other options that just might be a little bit more eloquent or faster or responsive to their unique needs. And the, the marketplace will respond accordingly. Absolutely. How much time do I have left with you? Uh, how much time do you want? I could about five minutes, about but I can delay. About five, 10 minutes. I just have one more question. Yeah. Let me, two. let me just, let's, let me just let my Okay. Next appointment, know that I'm busy and I'm doing All something right. very important. I'll, I'll be, be with well, you. I'm, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this conversation. So while you're doing Thank that, you. I'll just kind of ask you the question. Yeah, please. Uh, because I, I really want to, for our listeners, which are people who are finding ways to cultivate their talent, because one of the things you said earlier, you talked about how the bachelor's degree is becoming a weak signal. And I agree, um, still encourage people to uh, to take that route if that's, really where their passion and purpose is uh, to get them where they need to go. However, um, we can put more value on the certificate. You talked in your book about certificates and how that could be introduced as a, as a resource for helping students um, get into occupations that are sustainable, high wages, and pretty exciting. Yeah, I think increasingly industry credentials and certifications, they are the new employability currency. Um, even if a degree is required, it's insufficient oftentimes to, to be the successful candidate through the interview, interview pool. And there's a lot of groups that get this right. That the, the example that comes to mind immediately, Ahmad, is the Milton Hershey School in Pennsylvania. Now, the Milton Hershey School, I don't know if you're familiar with them, they, they've been requiring an industry credential for high school graduates for at least 10 years now. And they have 100% of their graduates graduate with at least one industry um, credential. And I think it's something like 90% like of their graduates um, get more than three or four industry credentials, especially if it's in like an IT sector or something where they, it's easier to rack up some Adobe certifications or something like that. Employers don't know what a certain high school, you know, Joe Blow High School or Joe Blow College, they don't, they don't know, how could they know what are the skills or the knowledge within a certain course or a certain degree program, but they know what's required to get that industry credential that they value. And the more that we can embed industry credentials in our, in our, the formal classes, K through 16, the stronger, it's a stronger symbol to employers about what it is that that, that student's coming out with. Um, I remember when I, when I first became Dean here, we had um, a graphic design program and we were teaching class in Adobe Photoshop, very common, uh, you know, software to get. And I was a little surprised to learn that we were not offering the industry credential. And so they were getting a, a three unit class, Carnegie unit class in, uh, in, in graphic design in Adobe, but they were walking out without that entry level certification. And when I sat down and met with the faculty and asked why, and she was very, very a hard worker, very kind. She was honest with me and she says, well, Kevin, I don't have the certification and I don't feel comfortable requiring that of my students if, if I don't have it myself. Well, you know, fair enough, right? And so I, I asked her, I says, well, would you be willing to go back and get the certification? Now, Ma, this is a big question for me to ask her because she only had two more years left till she was ready to retire. And here I am asking her to go back, get a certification, change her curriculum. 
And I want you to know, she said yes. And she went back really? to her credit. Wow. She got the Adobe certification. And when she came back from getting that, she was 90% there. And I kind of knew in my gut she was. She might have even been 95% there. She had to tweak just a few things in her curriculum. She changed the final exam of her class to be the industry certification exam. We used our, our state funding, you know, again, not to get technical, but our Perkins funding, you know, we paid for a site license. Ahmad, that year, every single student that graduated the class got their industry credential. And it had no cost to them because there was one educator that was willing to go the extra mile to humbly recognize that maybe there was a little bit of sharpening of the saw she could do for the benefit of her students. She sure. did it. And, and now our students are the beneficiary of that work every semester, you know, since that has occurred. And I think that's the kind of courage and self-reflection and humility and support that is required in every program and every sector um, because stu and students are realizing it that LinkedIn learning certificate or something they can get on their own has a lot of labor market value, oftentimes more than the academic course. And so my encouragement to everyone out there is, is gain those industry credentials. It lifted me out of working poverty. It gives students the competitive advantage. It can beat out the other uh, competitor for that job that might have the exact same degree with the exact same GPA, maybe from a quote unquote better school which or more known school. But it's that industry certification now and in the future that's really giving students that that extra edge um, among the competition. Well, I think it's great that you're you're such a living example of that. <clears throat> so, you know, for you students out there, just know that you too can become Kevin Fleming. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> or let's just say, please Kevin be a better Fleming version. Like, <laughs> please be better. Please don't set your sights so low. <laughs> so, 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 Kevin, in closing here. Um, what would you, if you, you know, I'm just going to open it up for you. If you had to tell a student who's in college, who is not sure, they're taking their general education, but they're not sure what they want to do um, with their lives and which direction to go, um, what would you recommend for them to do in, in terms of getting on uh, the track towards cultivating their skills and talents in a way that lights them up and arms them, you know, with, uh, with the credentials that they need? Wow, big question. Firstly, I'd advise them to go get the book Strength Finders 2.0, go online and take the Myers-Briggs type indicator assessment and go through a couple different lenses of self-exploration and really get to know your talents, your God-given talents, your expertise, where do you have your acumen? Where do you get fired up in your belly for things and really understand how you interact with all the elements out in the world so you can position yourself in at least a direction that is going to catapult you more successfully than something else arbitrarily, even if you think it might be glamorous or, or pay more. So the first thing I'd say is do that self-exploration. The second tool I would say is pick up the phone or go on LinkedIn and reach out to individuals that are doing the job you think you might be interested in. And if you don't know what you might be interested in, then your net is, can be cast very wide. Contact a mobile app developer, a veterinarian, a journalist, and a social media blogger and simply ask them, say, hey, my name's Kevin. I'm interested in maybe getting into your field. Can I, can I either buy you a $1 iced tea at McDonald's or if you're not in my neighborhood, can I Zoom with you for 20 minutes and can I just ask you a couple questions about what you do because I'm interested in your field and I want to learn from you. Now, as you know, everyone's favorite topic to talk about is themselves. 
So nine out of 10 people are going to accept that cold call or that invitation real quick with this young, gregarious college student that might want to emulate their career trajectory. And I would encourage your students to just ask them five very simple questions. What do you do? What do you like about what you do? What do you dislike about what you do? How did you get there? And what advice would you give me? If you ask those five questions to five uh, biologists or five published authors, you're going to start to get really refined information through these informational interviews to know what that pathway and that career looks like. And you're building mentors and building relationships and your professional network along the way. Whether you're laser beam focused and you know what you want to do, or if you're completely undecided, those steps of doing a deep self-exploration and doing informational interviews is going to naturally start to refine for you and shape for you what your next few steps would be. And that'd be advice I'd give any college student that is questioning or meandering or is experiencing a little bit of, of anxiety or, or career confusion. I'd say start with yourself first. Really know your assets because you are exceptional in many ways. And there's some things you suck at. That's how this whole human being thing works. I love it. So yeah. know that. And then start learning about all those different um, directions and how to get where you may want to be. And, and those two things combined are going to start naturally, organically shaping into a roadmap on then what the next step should be. Well, Dr. Kevin Fleming, I don't know whether we can conclude this conversation any better than that. I mean, that is just fire advice, man. And I appreciate it. Um, now, on your website, I went through there, you have a voluminous amount of resources, including links to assessments. I mean, a number of different assessments that uh, the students uh, could take and kind of explore. So if you don't mind, just share us a little bit more about um, your website, um, you know, where they can go to, and, and that's it. You know, I, I think your, your background is great. So I, first of all, I just wanna thank you for coming on uh, the Talented Life podcast. Um, your, your words are incredible. Given the fact that you're a VP, I thought you were gonna come on here, man, and be very old and, and <laughs> crotchy, man, with your, with your advice. It's good to know that you are still connected you know, well, to thank the generations you. who are coming through the pipeline. Well, thank you. And, and, and this, is, this is a great podcast series, and I'm honored to be part of the, the inaugural kind of season here. I, I'd say my website is, is my name. It's kevinjfleming.com. Um, there's a, a tab on there called Learn. There's some videos on there. I would say uh, definitely, you know, click around a little bit. I have vi animated videos on there specifically for educators, for counselors, for students, for parents. So watch one or two of those. Feel free to watch the, the, the content for others. Um, and, and feel free to pick up either the audiobook or some of the other free resources and links or downloads. Take the Myers-Briggs, uh, go to dreamcatcherprogram.com if you really want a deeper dive in finding your purpose and your intrinsic motivation to find your ikigai. Uh, the Dreamcatcher program is one I highly recommend. They, they, they're doing it right. There's a lot of other links on there that I, I recommend. Um, and of course, you know, maybe self-serving, but feel free to pick up a copy of uh, my book for you or for a colleague. Um, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in your corner, uh, not just you, Ahmad, but for everyone listening. I'm on LinkedIn heavily. Reach out anytime. Let me know if anything on there has, has been helpful for you or for your kids or for uh, a neighbor, you know, just kind of help them think about life uh, and, and their career trajectory and finding their purpose on purpose. And I continue to be a resource and look forward to continuing this conversation uh, maybe in, a, in another time. 
Absolutely, my friend. Well, have a great day. Thank you, you too. Thank you.